morning. If you don't know me, my name is Adam and it's really uh, wonderful to have you with us this morning and uh, it's great to be able to open up God's Word together. And I'd like to begin by asking you, what is your favourite underdog story? (laughs) What is your favourite underdog story? You know those stories where there's an individual or a team and they don't really have very much going for them? They're not that rich or strong or, or talented or gifted. But through hard work, through bravery, through perseverance, they rise above the odds to make something of themselves, to save the day, to win the championship, whatever it might be. What's your favourite underdog story? Maybe you're thinking of a movie like Rocky. Rocky Balboa is a bit of a bum uh, from the suburbs. He's a boxer, or at least he wants to be. But then through hard work and perseverance, he overcomes the odds and he has a shot at the world heavyweight title. Maybe you're thinking of one of my favourite movies, The Shawshank Redemption. Andy Dufresne is wrongfully imprisoned, but he uses his ingenuity and his uh, intelligence to fight back and to overcome the evil warden. Or maybe you're thinking of a classic, like Cool Runnings. If you don't know Cool Runnings, it's the story of the first Jamaican bobsled team to compete at the Winter Olympics. They overcome all the odds uh, to be there. Now, they don't win the gold medal, but who can forget them carrying their broken bobsled over the finish line? One of the best moments in cinematic history. Or maybe you're thinking, well, Adam, you're a little bit of an underdog story. (laughs) How the heck did you get Molly to marry you? I don't know. Evidence of God's grace, I guess. But I think we all love a good underdog story. And today, as we continue our way through the book of Judges, we come to the story of Gideon, the weak warrior. And the story of Gideon is in many ways an underdog story. See, Gideon comes up against the powerful Midianites and he leads his powerless, oppressed people to victory over them. But unlike Hollywood, this stunning victory and the stunning transformation that we're going to see in the life of Gideon, it doesn't come about because of his bravery or his perseverance or his hard work, but simply because of the grace and the power of God in his life. And this is why the story of Gideon matters for us. This is why the story of Gideon is so important. Because if you're a follower of Jesus, then this is your story as well. See, God takes sinners and failures and mess-ups and he freely gives them his love, his power and his grace and he transforms them and he gives them victory. And the story of Gideon is going to teach us some incredibly important lessons about how God is at work in our lives and in the world. And we read the story of Gideon in chapters 6 to 9 of the book of Judges. It's actually the longest Uh, story in the book of Judges, so we split it up over two weeks, and today we'll be looking at chapters 6 to 7, what is probably the good half of Gideon's story. And so we'll pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 6, and this is what we read. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. Now you might remember last week that Deborah and Jael, they deliver the Israelites from the hands of King Jabin. 
and the Israelites in the land then has rest for 40 years. But as chapter 6 begins, the judges' cycle begins again. The Israelites rebel against God and God once again punishes his rebellious people or disciplines his rebellious people by handing them over to the Midianites. And so there's a sense of deja vu. I mean, here we go again. But this time as we read on, it's a little bit different. See, in verses 2 to 6, we're told that the situation at this time in history was particularly bad for the Israelites. See, the Midianites would swoop in and they would steal the crops and the produce of the Israelites. And not only that, they would steal the animals and the tools that the Israelites used to produce their crops. They would leave the Israelites destitute and in fear. And in fact, the Israelites would flee the Midianites to go and live in caves during this time. And this went on for seven years. For seven years they were hungry, destitute and fearful. And the result is what we read in verse 6. Israel was brought very low because of Midian. Things are particularly bad for the Israelites at this time in history. And so again, they cry out to God for his help. Now we might expect God to do what he's done in the past in the book of Judges to raise up a judge who will deliver them from the Midianites. But interestingly, that's not what God does first. Look at what God does in response to the Israelites' cry. It says, When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. Now that's a bit different. Instead of raising up a judge to rescue his people, God sends a prophet to speak to them. In other words, Israel asks for salvation and God sends them a sermon. This is kind of like if you were broken down on the side of the road and you call RACQ and they send you a comedian instead of a mechanic. What's going on here? Why does God do this? Why send a prophet rather than a judge? Well, by this point, it's pretty obvious that Israel don't get it. The book of Judges has been a predictable cycle. The people rebel against God, God punishes them, they cry out to God for help, God rescues them, everything's good for a little while, but then they rebel against God again and the cycle continues. Israel don't get it. And so God sends a prophet to them to make clear to them the reason that they keep finding themselves in trouble. And look at what the prophet says to them in verse 10. This is what God says to them through this prophet. He says, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But here's the reason. But you have not obeyed my voice. This prophet goes to the Israelites to tell them that their real problem is not the other nations. It's not the Amorites. It's not the Midianites. Their real problem is their idolatry. Their real problem is their continual disobedience of God. And their oppression by these other nations, it will continue as long as they fail to recognise this and as long as they fail to truly repent. See, the reason that Israel are crying out to God, the reason they're crying out to God for his help, it's not because of repentance over their sin. It's simply for relief over their problems. They're not longing for restored relationship with God. They just want life to be easy again. And the truth is, for some of us, this is what our relationship with God is like. I mean, we treat God kind of like he's an ambulance. When our life crashes, we cry out to God for his help. We ask God to give us relief from our problems. We want God to show up and deal with our problem. 
And when he does, when the issue is resolved, when we don't need the ambulance anymore, we move on and we forget. Until, of course, the next time our life crashes and we cry out to God again. And God's saying to some of us today, I'm not an ambulance. I'm a father. I love you. I'm with you. I want to help you. But I'm not here just to make sure that your life is comfortable. You see, God has a greater goal for our lives than simply comfort. His goal is that we might know him and worship him with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength. Whatever our life might look like. Because it's only in knowing him and worshipping him that we find true peace, true joy, true happiness. And this is what God wants for us and this is what God wants for the Israelites. And this is why he sends them a prophet rather than a judge. He wants them to understand their real problems so that they can find a real solution. So how do the people respond? Do they repent? Well, we're not told. The story moves on and it doesn't move to the people's response. It moves to God's response. And God's response is incredibly gracious. He just begins to raise up another judge to rescue his people. And this teaches us such an important truth about God. It's that God begins to work salvation for his people even before they responded. In other words, we don't get ourselves into shape, we don't get our lives cleaned up and then God will come to us and rescue us. No, no, we bring God our mess. God reaches out to us in the midst of our mess and his power and his goodness begins to change us. This is the way we read it in Romans 5. God shows his love for us, us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So you don't clean yourself up so that you can then come to God. You bring your mess to God and his power begins to work in your life. And this is what God does for Israel. He calls another judge to rescue them from their oppression. And it's here that we meet Gideon. Look at what we read about Gideon in verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth, that's an oak tree, at Oprah. Now I didn't realise she'd been around that long, but that's pretty impressive. Which belongs to Joash the Abezerite. While his son, his Gideon, was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. Now I'm no farmer, but even I know that, if, that you don't beat wheat in a wine press. Now, a wine press in that day was underground and it was cramped. Not the ideal place for, for beating out wheat, which you would throw into the air and it would blow the chaff away. So what's Gideon doing beating wheat underground in a wine press? He's afraid. He's afraid of the Midianites. And so straight away we're told something about Gideon and that is he is no William Wallace. He's no Chuck Norris. He's no mighty warrior. And this is what makes verse 12 so strange. This is what makes the angel's greeting to Gideon so odd. Look what the angel says to Gideon. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valour. Now if this were a movie, everybody would kind of laugh at this point. Because Gideon's cowering underground. I mean, he hardly seems like a mighty man. So what's going on here? Is the angel kind of being ironic? Is the angel having a little bit of fun with Gideon, mocking him? The answer is no. 
the angel is being deadly serious. See, God is speaking to Gideon through this angel, not based upon who Gideon is or where he is presently, but based upon who God is going to make him into in the future. In other words, Gideon is not called by God because he is a mighty man. Gideon will become a mighty man because God has called him and God will be with him. And friends, this teaches us again such an important truth about us and about God. When God calls us, when God reaches out to us, when God saves us, he doesn't define us by the condition that we are in. He defines us by who we are in Christ and who he is going to make us into. I don't know if you've noticed this, but when you read the Bible, the Bible calls us some words that just don't seem to fit who we are. I mean, the Bible calls sinners like us, and it uses words like this, child of God, justified, saint, righteous, chosen, holy, and blameless. Now, I could go on and on. You see, when God saves us, he doesn't define us by who we are in and of ourselves. And this is incredibly good news. He defines us by who we are in Christ and what our future holds. And this is why God can look at Gideon cowering in a hole and say, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now, I don't know what hole you find yourself cowering in today. Maybe it's the hole of addiction. Maybe it's the hole of trauma or illness, or anxiety, or depression, or loneliness, or failure, or fear. And I'm not sure what hole you might be carrying in. But if you are in Christ, that hole does not define you and it is not your future. You are defined by God and your future is as bright as God says it is. And this is what God says to Gideon. Now, I know some of you might be thinking, well, that sounds nice, Adam, but you don't know what's happened to me. You don't know what's in my past. You don't know what's in my present. You don't know what is currently happening to me. What's going on in the background? You're still not convinced. And you know what? Neither was Gideon. Despite the angel's reassurances, Gideon still had some doubts that he was a mighty man of valour. And I'm sure that these are doubts you've wrestled with at some stage. Look at what Gideon says to the angel. He says, please, my Lord. He's being polite. If the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? Talking about the Exodus. But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hands of Midian. In other words, Gideon's saying, if God is really with us, then why is so much bad stuff happened to us? Why hasn't God rescued us from Midian like he rescued our ancestors in Egypt? And of course, we already know that the reason the Israelites are enslaved, it's not because God has abandoned the people, it's because the people have abandoned God. And we know that God is working in the midst of their troubles to bring them back to him. Now we know all of that, but how easily do we too make the same mistake that Gideon makes? I mean, which one of us has not said at some point, God, if you're really with me, why is this happening to me? God, where are you? Which one of us hasn't said that at some point? See, like Gideon, we often see our troubles in life as evidence that God has left us. When in reality, 
Our troubles might be the evidence that God is with us. See, God has promised that he's never going to leave us, never going to forsake us. And like we read in Romans 8, that well-known promise from God that he's at work in all things. And the last time I checked, all things includes all things. And so Gideon's first objection is one that we have wrestled with in the past, I'm sure. He's saying God can't be with us because we're still enslaved. And then he says if God was really with us, He'd rescue us from these Midianites. He'd do something about this. Well, Gideon's about to get a bit of a shock. Look at what the angel says to him. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. See, Gideon's sitting there complaining that God's not doing anything. God says, well, okay, get ready, Gideon. I'm about to do something. And I'm going to do it through you. And again, how easily do we make this same mistake? We often sit by passively wondering, why doesn't God do something about this? Why doesn't God fix that? And I think God is saying to some of us today, well, what are you waiting for? I know there's lots of things going on in the world that are beyond our control, but what are you doing with what God has given you? New Life Orphanage started... Because there was one child in a church and Bella and her husband said, yes, God. Simple act of obedience and now 450 children have had their lives changed and transformed. God works through simple acts of simple obedience. And so often we so easily just complain. Why isn't God doing this? Why doesn't the church do that? And God's saying to some of us, Maybe I'm sending you. What has God put on your heart that you can do something about? And this is what God says to Gideon. Hey Gideon, buckle up, I'm sending you. And this is a bit of a shock for poor Gideon and he responds in the way that I think many of us do respond and would respond. Excuses. Look at what he says to the Lord in reply. And he said to him, Please Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, one of the tribes of Israel. And he says, and I am the least in my father's house. He's saying, God, you got the wrong guy. I'm the runt of the family. I'm from a weak clan in a weak tribe. You got the wrong Gideon. I, you know, maybe there's another strong Gideon around here somewhere, but not me. And you know what? All of Gideon's excuses are true. He is weak. He is afraid. He is from a, a weak clan in a weak tribe. But do you think any of that matters to God? Do you think God's like, oh, dang, you, yeah, you're right, Gideon. I didn't notice that before. Thanks anyway, see you later. Do you think God is put off by Gideon's weakness? Or do you think he's chosen him because of his weakness? And God answers Gideon's excuses with one simple phrase that changes everything. Look at what the Lord says to him. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you. And you shall strike the Midianites as one man. In other words, you will take out this massive Midianite army as if it was one scrawny little dude. Not because you're so strong, not because you're so amazing, Gideon, but because I am and I will be with you. I love what one one commentator says about this verse. He says, but I will be with you. You can go through a lot with that promise. 
It does not answer your questions about details. It only provides the essential. Nothing about when or how or where or why. Only the what or better, the who. But I will be with you. And that is enough. This is God's one-line answer to every feeling of fear and inadequacy that we may have. I will be with you. Let me ask you this. What would your life be like if you knew in every situation God was with you? You're going into surgery, God is with me. You're going to have a difficult conversation with, with someone at work or at home, God is with me. You're starting a new job, God is with me. You're facing struggles at work, God is with me. What if you knew that God was with you in every circumstance and situation? This is the promise that can transform the way you walk through life. And this is the promise that God gives to Gideon. Now, do you think that this promise was enough for Gideon? Do you think that he was like, great, and and ran off to face the Midianites? No. No. Because we know ourselves. (laughs) What follows in the next few verses is Gideon asking God for a series of signs to reassure and to comfort him that God is really with him and that God is really calling him to do this. And the first sign we see, Gideon makes some food and he sets it down before the angel. The angel touches it with his staff and the whole thing lights up and Gideon's amazed and so he builds an altar to God and he tears down his family's altars to false Canaanite gods. So Gideon's starting to get it, but then he's faced with the prospect of actually going out into battle against the Midianites and he begins to wrestle with his doubts again. And he asks God for a series of more signs. And he says to God, he says, God, I'm going to put an animal skin. I'm going to put a fleece out on the ground. And if you're really with me, then in the morning, let the ground be dry and let the animal skin be wet. And so they do that and God does that. But Gideon maybe thinks it's a coincidence, maybe he thinks it wasn't hard enough, and so he says to God, okay, can we do that again, but just let's flip it around. Look at what we read in verse 39. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. He knows that he's pushing it. (laughs) Let me speak just once more. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. In other words, I want the animal skin to be dry and the ground to be wet this time. Verse 40, and God did so that night. And it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. And so Gideon asked God for these signs to reassure him that he's with him, that he's got to do what God has called him to do. And I guess it begs the question, well, is this in the Bible for us to emulate? Is this a good thing for us to do? Should we get some animal skins and you know, put them outside and ask God to do this kind of thing? Well, first of all, let's be honest and let's just admit that we have all done this. Let's, you know, God, if you want me to date this person, let them send me a text message today. God, if you want me to take the job, let it rain today. God, if you want me to eat the ice cream, don't return from heaven in the next five seconds. One, two, three, four, five. Oh, okay, all right, I'll eat the ice cream then. We ask God for these weird signs to confirm his will in our lives. Should we do this? Well, the truth is, as you read the Bible, nowhere do you get the sense that we're encouraged to do this. In fact, Jesus was once asked to give a sign to prove his identity. And look at what he said. He said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. 
You see, we don't need to ask God for signs in order to know his will because the truth is we have something that Gideon did not have. We have the Bible. Do you want to know what God requires of you? Open up his word. Read the Bible. The Bible is God's way of telling us for certain who he is and what he requires from us. And he's written it down for us because he knows that we are prone to forget and we're prone to move on. And not only do we have the Bible, we have the indwelling presence of God's Spirit. And the Spirit leads and guides us and opens up and illuminates God's Word for us. Jen Wilkin, the Bible teacher that John mentioned last week, she puts it this way. She says, do you ever wonder why an angel of the Lord doesn't come stand in your bedroom and tell you what to do? She says, because you have it between two covers. It's on your nightstand. The Bible is God's Word to us. And God has been so gracious in telling us clearly who he is and what he requires from us. And so we don't need to ask him for random signs to know what he wants. We have it between two covers. And the truth is, this is not even really what Gideon was doing here. See, Gideon is not asking God whether he should go out to face the Midianites. God had already told him that that's exactly what he wanted him to do. Gideon is asking for reassurance that God really is in control. Gideon is asking God for proof that he really is with him. And this is why, did you notice this, that God responds the way he does. He doesn't get exasperated with Gideon. He doesn't get angry with Gideon. He says, Gideon, I've already told you this. He gives Gideon the sign. And again, Dale Ralph Davis says it this way. He says, God is not ashamed to stoop down and reassure us in our fears. He is patient with our weakness. God doesn't mind humbling himself in order to bolster our fragile faith, our wavering grip on his word. So what about us? How can we know that God is in control? How can we know that God is for us and with us? Well, the truth is we have something far, far greater than a wet animal skin. We can have absolute certainty that God is in control, that God loves us, that God is for us because of the cross and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, I didn't give you the full verse or or the full reply that Jesus gave to the person who asked for a sign uh, for his identity. Look at what Jesus said to them. He says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Now, the sign of Jonah is simply referring to Jesus' resurrection. Jonah was three days in the belly of the fish before he was spat out. Jesus was three days in the tomb before he rose again. You see, Jesus' resurrection is the ultimate sign, the ultimate proof of his identity and his victory. That God is in control. That God is on our side. That God has defeated our enemies. That God loves us and is with us. And if you ever doubt God's control in your life, If you ever doubt God's love for you, if you ever doubt God is with you, cast your eyes upon Jesus. Look to the cross where he paid the penalty for your sin. Look to the empty tomb where he rose again as evidence and confirmation that your sin and your death has been defeated. Look to Jesus. See, God is so gracious in giving us these signs. And the ultimate sign is Jesus. But for Gideon, it was the wet 
animal fleece. And with this sign granted, all he has to do now is to trust God for the victory. And this is what happens in chapter 7. Gideon marches out and they win a stunning victory over the Midianites. But it wasn't really Gideon or the army that won the victory. You see, Gideon set out with 32,000 men to go and face the Midianites, but by the time they actually get there, only 300 men are left. God had whittled down his army to 300 men. Why? Look at what God said in chapter 7, verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. See, God orchestrates this victory so that Gideon and Israel would look back and think the victory was God's, not ours. Our only part was to trust and obey, and God did the rest. And this victory gives us a wonderful picture of how God saves us. See, God saves us not because of our strength, but because of his. God accepts us not because of our goodness, but because of Jesus' goodness. See, the gospel is the ultimate underdog story. It tells us that every single one of us are not just separated from God. We're not just bad people needing to become good, obey some rules. We are dead people needing to be brought to life. And no amount of hard work, bravery, perseverance can save us, rescue us or bring us to God. We need God to reach down to us and to give us what we cannot earn and what we do not deserve. And the good news of the Bible, of the Gospel, is that this is exactly what God does for us. Jesus lives the life that we have not lived. Jesus dies the death we deserve to die. Jesus rises from death to give us the salvation that we do not deserve. And the good news is, it is freely offered to every single person. You might think I'm weak, I'm afraid, I'm not worthy. When God came to Gideon, he was weak, afraid and cowering in a hole. And God's grace, God's love, God's power met him in that hole and transformed him. And you too can come to know the living God. God freely offers himself to us. We simply open our hands up and receive what he's done. Because God loves underdog sinners like you and I. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you have reached out to weak, afraid, sinful people like us. And you have freely given us your love, your grace, your righteousness through your son Jesus. Help us now to live a life that honours and glorifies you until we see you and our faith is made sight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to respond and we're going to stand again and sing of his transforming, saving grace that we started this service with. Let's stand and sing. You, my God, have saved my soul. I am yours forevermore. I won't be.
be moved of this unsure. You, my God, you saved my soul. Yeah.